Hey guys, before we get into today's episode, I just want to take a minute and talk about a product that we both love and use, and that is Simple Spectrum Supplement. Simple Spectrum is doctor formulated and third party tested, and they use only the highest quality of bioavailable ingredients. So it is free of all the junk and Simple Spectrum was designed with our kids and their sensory needs in mind. So it is unflavored dissolvable powder that is free of gluten, casein, added sugar, soy, Basically, it's everything you want and nothing that you don't want. Another reason why I love Simple Spectrum is because they are a brand that really educates and supports families, and they're putting out products that parents can trust. They also just recently came out with a fish oil that is awesome. I will say that we've been using Simple Spectrum for a while now, and when we first started using it with Logan, we really noticed a difference in his overall focus and attention, and that is something that the whole time we've been using it, we have continued to see the benefits of. So if it's something that you're interested in trying, you can go to their website. And if you use the code AIA at checkout, then you will receive free shipping on your order. So definitely, I totally recommend it. And like I said, if you want to try it, you can use the code AIA and you will get free shipping. Now on to the episode. Welcome to Adventures in Autism, episode 163. I am Megan Carranza. Thank you so much for coming to listen. If it is your first episode, welcome. So happy to have you. And if you've been listening, thank you so much for coming on back to the show. As always, I just want to start by saying thank you so much to everybody for all the love and support you guys give the show. There was a couple new reviews on iTunes this week, Apple Podcast. And it really does just make me so happy. It warms my heart to hear all the kind words, but just to know that the podcast is helping people. And it always amazes me to know that there are new listeners finding it every week. And truly, I'm just so thankful to have all of you. And I'm so proud of this this little pod that could. So thank you so much. If you have been enjoying the show and you have not yet left a rating or review, on Apple Podcast, I would be so, so appreciative if you would take a moment to leave a few kind words or just tap that five star. That really does help too. Um, thank you so much to everybody that has done that. And today I'm super excited. My guest is Dr. Kat and she is a psychologist who specializes in diagnosing autism. And we talk all about the diagnosis process. She works with everybody from little babies, like one year old to adults. Uh, she has a private practice and they are doing amazing things, not just with, you know, diagnosing and supporting families, but she talks about how they have programs for adults on the spectrum, like social programs, and just provides a ton of great resources. If you don't follow her on social media, you definitely should. Um, all her links will be in the show notes. So definitely check that out and an awesome website as well with lots of great resources and and like I said, that will be in the show notes too. But really, we just had a great conversation. She was a wealth of knowledge. We had so much to talk about. And I really enjoyed chatting with her. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Kat. Hi, Dr. Kat. Welcome to Adventures in Autism. Hi, thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you so much for being here. You and I were just saying it's been like a long time coming that we have been <laughs> trying yes. to get you on the show. And I'm so excited that you finally are because I feel like we, I mean, we were just talking a little bit before we started. And I just think we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. yes. So obviously with you, um, this is this is your life's work. This is your expertise. Mm-hmm. So if you will kind of take us back to what motivated you or inspired you to get into this field, I would love to hear. Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. So I'm going to go um, a little bit way back and kind of just take it back to or now where I am today. So mm-hmm. I don't think it was anything that was really deliberate or accidental when I you know, was working with, you know, with autistic individuals in this line of work. I think it was just more of a progression. Um, you know, growing up, I did have a family member who struggled with mental health. So I was exposed to psychology from a younger age and just that, that topic. And I did have two neighbors growing up who now I have a better understanding of autism were severely autistic and I would help babysit for them or take care of them from time to time. Um, my mom also, we grew up, I grew up in a very small town um, and it's a very community-based neighborly type place. And um my mom worked in the school. She was a paraeducator and she also did recess. So she would always push me when she saw kids that I know she helped who had different or special needs. She would want, she didn't want them being left out in the playground. She had a big, big heart for that and um, would always want me, you know, she'd tell me, Hey, you need to go play with this kid over there too. Like, don't, you know, don't leave them out with your friend group. So I was also just kind of pushed to, I think also um, include, I, you know, it was pretty much a thing in our house. Like you always include others, no matter what background they come from, no matter what difficulties they come from. So I was just pretty exposed to, I think, that area really early on. Then when I was in high school, I was taking psychology and sociology classes. And that really drove my interest, I think, to want to be a psychologist. That's where I think the wheels started turning in that sense. But then my mom, uh, she passed away, unfortunately, when I was a teen from a brain tumor, took her life pretty quick. And I think that started to lead me to the direction of neuropsychology. So neuropsychology is a lot different than standard psychology, diagnostic testing. And that really just started to lead me in that direction. But when I was in college, I still wasn't really sure, you know, at that time, I wanted to work with specifically autistic individuals, um, ADHD learning issues um, at that time. But I was working with, I was behave, I was trained as a, as a behavioral technician, where I was working with autistic children doing behavioral work in homes. And I really, really loved it. I think I've always had, I've always been drawn to working with children. Um, I have a big heart for working with kids. And I think at that time, that was kind of the defining point for me that I wanted to work with kids. Then I went and got my master's and that's where I took my first assessment course and I absolutely fell in love. So up until that point, I always thought I would do something more with therapy, which I do do some therapy, but primarily my focus is testing. But I absolutely loved the testing portion. It clicked really well with me. It's very mathematical based. Um, I love the diagnostic approach from it. So I knew then I wanted to do something with testing. And I got my doctorate degree. And then I continued to do internships, practicums, postdocs that were very testing and neuropsych focused and continue to take courses from there. But something that I noticed, though, along my training and testing and assessment was that there were there really wasn't, you know, I feel like in the last decade, you know, five to 10 years that we've had a better understanding of autism. And it's still, there still isn't a, I think a lot of clinicians out there and doctors that really don't understand it. 
um, why kids get misdiagnosed all the time. But I started noticing that way back in my training when I was still a student that, you know, there, that some of these children, you know, I was like, you know, maybe there's more to this diagnosis than just ADHD. Um, because ADHD is such a common diagnosis that we see in the neuropsych realm. But I was like, maybe there's something more going on. And so I started taking more specified um, continuing education courses in autism and autism assessment. And that's where I think I really started to understand that, hey, some of these children now aren't just ADHD. Some of them have this other diagnosis and they can get more help and services from that. Um, then after I finished my postdoc, I started my own practice a year later where I'm at now. So it's been open since 2017 and it primarily focuses on diagnostics in autism, ADHD, learning difficulties, emotional dysregulation, and behavior. And we do see children as young as 12 months all the way through adults for testing. So we are very specialized in the diagnosis that patients come for our evaluations, as well as that we do see not only very, you know, a lot of people that do testing may just see children of a certain age group, like five and up or six and up, um, or just teens or just adults. But we see we are specialized because we do so many uh, additional educational coursework and we're always doing continued trainings in our clinic that we specialize also testing really young children as young as 12 months and even adults. Because we do find that a lot of adults have con contact us and they say, hey, I've been struggling this my entire life, all these sensory concerns that I have. So we can then diagnose, you know, it's, it's difficult to diagnose an adult with autism because you have to look way back and able then to give them that assessment, you know, to really understand, is it autism that you, that you have another diagnosis of? And then for the very young ones, we're able to make that evaluation as well. That's incredible. You just said like a hundred things that I'm like, want to want to <laughs> comment. <laughs> um, first of all, I just have to say your mom sounds incredible. And I love yeah. that she just had such a kind, inclusive heart. Um, and I, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that she had passed away. I don't, I don't know if you've followed my personal story with my family, but brain tumors and brain cancer is yeah. something very close to our heart, unfortunately. So um, I just wanted to say that I'm, I'm so sorry about your mother, but she, I, I think she'd be so incredibly proud of the work that you're doing now. Thank you. I um, appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you are, have been a busy lady. Um, I, I, you're, just hearing this whole story, this whole like genesis of how this came to be is so incredible. And I love what you said about, you know, really specializing in the testing, because like you were saying, you know, it's, it's really difficult. Like there's kind of that, that certain age group that you can somewhat easily, I think, depending on your area, find a doctor to diagnose, mm -hmm. but yeah, having, having kids that are as young as 12 months, that's like unbelievable. But there are so many parents that I talk to that tell me like, I knew at a year yeah. that something was going on. Um, and we actually had a kind of a similar experience because Logan, we started seeking a diagnosis when he was three and we were on an eight month wait list. And I was just like, so desperate to get in sooner that I started calling around to like different clinics and psychologists to see if I could get him in anywhere sooner. And most of them were telling me they wouldn't see children younger than six. And granted, yeah. this was like a few years ago, but it just felt like how, and even, even before we had him diagnosed, like when I would talk to professionals, a lot of them would tell me, I think it's better to wait till he's closer to kindergarten. You'll get like a more finite diagnosis. And at the time, my husband and I were just looking at each other, like, but we know there's an issue now. Like, why would we wait? you know, two, three more years and yes. like waste that time. 
Um, well, you know, as a parent, I mean, I always tell parents, I say, you're going to know your child better than any doctor, any professional, any teacher. I mean, I'm a mom myself. I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old and my daughter, I mean, she has speech delay. She's 18 months and I've felt like she's had speech delays since she was a baby, just babbling later. And I've been telling the pediatrician the same thing. I'm like, I feel like she's going to have speech. Delay. She was born early. She had jaundice. She had all the, she was had low birth weight. And now she's 18 months and I'm like going full force with it. And people are like, Oh no, just wait, just wait. And I'm like, this is my area. Like I'm, yeah. I know she has speech delay. Let's get the evaluation so she can have those services. But I hear that all the time where I, I just tested a girl, um, on, you know, earlier this week and she was three and a half and the same thing from a pediatrician, just wait it out and see. But I don't think a lot of pediatricians know that you can assess as young as 12 months, nor do a lot of clinicians also specialize in that too. So we try to do a lot of networking with a lot of providers in the area. You know, I have screeners up on our website. I give the screeners to the pediatricians just say, Hey, like, these are some other red flags. If a parent, you know, is in doubt, like, like yourself, you know, and saying, Hey, I I'm worried about this. Um, you know, just to follow the parent's instinct, allowing them to make that decision to get them assessed. I totally agree. I've always said that, like, even before Logan was diagnosed, I just feel like nobody knows their child better than their parents. And I don't want to sound like I'm discriminating, but particularly mothers, I just think of mothers, like, carried this child, we made this child. And I just feel like you, that, that intuition that a mother or any parent has is, it really, to me, like, it's, it's much more on the, on the spot than, than yeah. Tend to be. Um, and I'm not trying to, like I said, diminish anybody, but I've just, I've just seen that time and time again for myself and with others. Um, tell me a little bit, I mean, this is kind of like, oh, and, and like how you had said too about adults on the spectrum. So I, I have con- connected with many adults who are mm-hmm. in the process of being evaluated. And like you said, it is like a really long process. Um, but I think that's great. You're doing it because it, it, it does seem like it's difficult to find even doctors that are willing to, to work with somebody to get a diagnosis later in life. Yeah. And something I also didn't mention is that my brother-in-law, my husband's brother, his only brother, um, is also autistic. And so that's kind of where another part of my heart and passion is because I've seen, I've known him since he was in middle school. Now he's in his late twenties. And, um, one of the things that I've noticed when I was starting my practice is I really wanted to originally just focus it just on kids, but then knowing his struggle as a teen and as an adult, I'm like, you know, there's this whole other population, they turn 18 and then they're kind of just like thrown by the wayside. And it's like, forget it. Like you can't get a diagnosis. You can't get services. Like you have all these services in school or even private services up until a certain age. And then it just ends. So I was like, no, if we're going to specialize in diagnosing autism, we have to also understand how to help these adults too, who also need that diagnosis and maybe can provide them some type of care, whether it's therapy or connect them with something in the community. Um, So the assessment for an adult looks a lot different than it would for a child. It's a lot more, it's a lot longer. Um, for the adult, you know, we have to do an intake with that individual. We do one with another family member. So that's already looking at about two hours right there, an hour with the patient, an hour with another family member to get more of a history. Because when we're looking at an adult, they could say, yeah, I, I had these issues growing up, but then we want to have a better understanding of maybe another third party who is able to remember this person when they were younger to validate that. And then we also then go through and we give them the standard neuropsych with like the, we do the, the IQ assessment. We do the ADOS for adults. That's the one we give for everybody for the autism testing. But then we also do an objective rating and we do other tests as well that may look at executive functioning because a lot of individuals, they 
if they're coming to us for an adult autism evaluation, they may already have a previous diagnosis of anxiety or ADHD. So we're looking at that as well. We're we're also ruling out anxiety with ADHD as well as autism because they are so closely aligned and sometimes the symptoms and traits can closely align. And when we're diagnosing autism specifically, we're looking at the development because it is a developmental disorder. That's how we do the intake. And then we also look at the ADOS, how they presented on the ADOS, and then how are they rating themselves and how is the objective, an objective rater also rating them too. So we're putting all these three pieces together to see, to make sure that they're, they're all aligning. It's like basically three, three to four different points of data that we're putting together to make that diagnosis in an adult. Wow. That's, that's so interesting. And it makes total sense because like you said, it's like, I love what you said about, you know, wanting to include adults and have that be a part of the practice because it's so true. Like for, for kids, there is a relative, you know, relatively good amount of services available, but then yeah, as they get older, it just seems like there's like less and less. So I think it's wonderful that, that you've included the adults, um, especially inspired by your brother-in-law. Yeah, we started a group for adults who are autistic and it's, they meet every other week and then they also have their own like social group. So they're on their own text message chat, one that they have with the therapist who runs the actual therapy support group. It's more of a support group. And then they work on like things that maybe they found maybe difficult throughout their, the last couple of weeks. And then they have their own separate text message group. So they have like a friend base as well. So they go out together, do things in the community. Um, obviously things have been different in the last year with things being shut down, but they're able to, you know, I know they just did like some outing that they did at the zoo, I think a few weeks ago. So they get together and they create their own um, like social events with each other, which is great. And that's also part of the support group so that they're not just, you know, if they're, if they're not working, then they're not sitting at home alone and not doing anything else, but that's is encouraging them to connect with other individuals. I have like the biggest smile right now because I just love hearing about that. That sounds incredible. Um, we definitely, I mean, we're, we talk about this a lot in the show, but we definitely need more, more resources and services like that for adults on the spectrum. Yeah, there really isn't a lot. It's unfortunate. And the group has been full. It's been going on for, I think, almost two years now. And it's been full in the entire time that we want to open up a second one too, um, because it's, I mean, there's such a high demand for the group. Oh, oh my gosh. Wow. Well, you, you really are doing amazing things. Um, so thank you so much for just everything you're doing for the community. Tell me a little bit. So obviously, like we were saying, there is like the really young kids and there's like yeah. the, the adults on the spectrum that are, are looking for um, an evaluation. But what's kind of like a typical evaluation process? like for the parents listening who, you know, are maybe like looking into this or gearing up for an evaluation? What can they kind of expect going into this? Yeah. So for the toddler one, or if a child is younger or nonverbal, so we have, when we're looking at the ADOS, there's different modules. You have a toddler module, which is 12 months to two and a half years of age. You have a mod one where a child may have significant language delays and they're not really communicating more than just a few words. And that goes from two and a half and up. Then you have another module, which would be some language. And then you have two, one is for adolescents and then one is for adults who have full language. So the ones for the toddlers and the module ones for the very young children who are still developing language and have a language delay, those are very similar. So we would do a parent intake, then we would give them a rating skill. Typically, it's something called a GARS or an MCHAT. And then the ADOS in itself is very play-based. It takes about an hour to administer. 
And um, it, we're looking at how the child, since there's not any language, how they're communicating, responding to their name, or if they're communicating non-verbally with their language or play skills. Um, we look for, are they pointing? Are they gesturing? Are they waving, nodding their head? Um, you know, yes or no. Are they requesting things? So if a toy is broken or if they need help with something, how are they requesting help? We also look for things too. If we, um, we do a lot of things that sometimes, you know, it looks very play-based, but then we're also, it's, it looks unstructured. This is why I like the ADOS is because it looks very unstructured, but it is also structured at the same time. Like there are certain prompts and scripts that we're giving through to the child and asking the parents, um, to do, but it also seems very relaxed and kind of fun because we're just interacting with the child in a very relaxed environment for about 45 minutes to an hour. And we're looking for certain things. So like if we're let's say the child's playing with one of the toys, like um, those shape sorters, right? If you're familiar with those when your kids are younger. So it's like a bucket with the different shapes and you're trying to fit them in the, in the correct hole. Then we're covering maybe the, one of the, the tops of it. And we're seeing is the child looking at us. That's an odd thing to do when a child's playing, right? You don't typically like cover it. And we're looking at, are they moving our hand away? Are they making eye contact with us? How are they communicating with us? Because since they don't have language, a lot of it is very nonverbal communication. Because even a child who has, language delay without the autism is still going to have nonverbal communication with you or a child who is very anxious is still going to communicate nonverbally. We'll do things like there's a bubble play within the ADOS. So we'll take bubbles out, we're playing with them. And if the child wants to turn, we say, do you want to turn? And we'll hand them like the bubble wand, but then we move it away from them as if we're teasing them and taking it away. We move it out to the side and we're looking at something called this joint attention. So how is a child communicating with us through eye contact? Are they looking at just the object, which would be the bubble wand? Are they looking at us and the object trying to communicate non-verbally like, hey, lady, like, what are you doing? Why did you just take this wand away from me? I thought you were going to give it to me, right? We look for different facial expressions too, like a puzzled look would be, you know, a typical response to that. Um, just there's a lot of different factors. We're giving things like so. Um, and a lot of this information is also we asked during the intake. But then we get to really see it play out during the testing. So is the child giving the parents different toys throughout the evaluation, which is developmentally appropriate in toddlers, right? They're just giving random things. If you can remember when your kids were 12 months or 18 months, they just give you things, right? Or are they showing you something, holding it up, looking at you, looking back at the toy, like, hey, look what I'm holding. Also, how the child's playing. So it's very typical that you'd want to see a child to explore the room and jump from toy to toy. Um, we don't want to see them typically fixated on a toy or hitting it repetitively. So, but not every child is going to also present the same. So one thing that I've noticed is that um, girls in my own assessment typically may have better than boys, but this isn't something diagnostic that's actually scored in the ADOS, just like with eye contact. Some children who are autistic have fantastic eye contact and some don't. So we're looking at across a whole a whole variety of different symptoms and behaviors that's getting scored in the algorithm on the ADOS that comes to that child's total score that then gets converted. And then we're taking that score as well as with the parent intake, everything they discussed in there to see if that aligns, like how the child's performing in the room. Is that similar to what the parent is describing them during the intake? And then also how are they rating them on the objective rating skill too? It's so funny. Cause I, like so much of this is like in, in like the corners of my brain and then hearing yeah. you talk about, it, I'm like, Oh yeah, I remember that stuff. Um, you, you did mention a couple, a couple things that I know what they mean, but just in case anyone listening doesn't, can you just explain what joint attention means? Yeah, sure. So joint attention would be if you're, um, 
trying to communicate with the child and looking at an object and having them also join with you and then look together at the object and then back. Yeah. And I think that is, that was something that I used to hear about a lot and really didn't understand why that was, there's so many things that like when Logan was little, cause he's my first, Yeah, I, I was so confused. Like, well, why is that a big deal? Like why, <laughs> why does yeah. that matter? And then when I had my girls and saw them doing these things, I was like, Oh, that's why this matters. Cause they want to like engage with me and, yes. and like, and they can't speak yet. And that's their way of communicating. Right. Cause toddlers and babies can't speak yet. And to me, these are actually, I feel like these are bigger milestones than even walking, you know, but when you go to the pediatrician, they're like, are they crawling yet? Are they walking yet? Are they sleeping through the night? And it's like, okay, well, my kids, my, my oldest is almost four. He does not sleep through the night. So I don't know. <laughs> Uh, that's even, you know, but I, I mean, I feel like these are questions that they should be asking, you know, like children can make eye contact super, super young. And nobody ever asked me on either of my appointments with my young kids, were they doing these things? I mean, I know, know it from my line of work, but most parents don't know these things, you know, and it's, it's kind of a disservice that they're not asking this earlier, especially when we know we can test for as young as 12 months. Yeah, it's so true. I feel like pediatricians in general, I mean, I, I, I speak to some people who I think they just like hit the jackpot with a pediatrician and they have a better understanding of autism. But I just think so often they, and it's crazy because it's like they work with kids. So it's like you yeah. would think they would get more training with this just to know like what to look for and how to spot things just to even like, you know, suggest an evaluation. Um, but it just seems like they... I, I just think pediatricians in general, it's like they're great for typical kids, but if there's yeah. like anything outside of like the scope of typical, it's, it's yeah. not good. <laughs> I think, I, I think a lot of it is also fear-based. They're scared to say, Hey, maybe your child should get tested for autism, or I'm concerned about this. And I've even seen in some reports, I, I don't want to knock anyone, but I, I have seen some reports where even on the ADOS, the child is scoring in the autism range and they're not making a diagnosis. And I'm like, okay, there's all this stuff in the background, the parents rating them, they're scoring in this range. Why are you not diagnosing it? It's like, it's, it hasn't happened a lot, you know, thankfully, but I've, you know, parents will come to me and they're like, oh yeah. I'm like, have they been evaluated before? Sure. Here's the report. And I'm reading it and I'm like, wait, why, why did they not diagnose it? They're diagnosing oppositional defiant disorder, but all the evidence is in the report. I, I think there's just a lot of fear base and maybe that comes with a lack of understanding too, you know, when you understand something more, you're more confident um, in making that diagnosis. I think that's just part of it. You know, I think it's just a collection of all that. I'm sure you're right. I just think that that is like not not satisfactory. <laughs> like I just yeah. I can't accept that because I just I don't understand what what the point is of you know having me like you said like when they do like the M chat or whatever. It's like why if there, if there's noticeable red flags, or even if like, for me, it was like, I was pushing for the evaluation and really had to like push to get a referral to see a developmental pediatrician. Because when we would come into the pediatrician, he was, Logan was always like a super happy kid. He was very like smiley and engaged and he did mm -hmm. have like decent eye contact and his pediatrician so many times would just reassure me. And she's like, I just, I just think he's fine. I just think he's doing great. He's a late talker. That's all he's hitting all of his, you know, other milestones. And it, it wasn't until, like I said, like closer to three that I finally like broke down and I'm like, we have got to see, a, 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 I need, I need somebody who understands what I'm talking about. <laughs> like that was, yeah. And she, she finally did make the referral. And she even said to me, she's like, I'm going to do this because you're asking for it. But she's like, if this were, you know, just up to me, I don't think he needs to be evaluated. 
And, you know, looking back now, I, and I talked to so many other parents who've been in a similar situation. It's like, as a, as a parent going through this, that's, that's all you want to hear from somebody is that your child is okay. So it's like hearing that is, it's in some ways it's, you know, it's like comforting and reassuring, but it's really just false hope. Because again, like we were saying, you as the parent know so much better than Mm -hmm. the doctor. So it was like, I, I knew what we were dealing with and, you know, hearing her say that she thought he was fine was, it was all I wanted to hear, but it really was just kind of like building me up to fall harder, you know? Yeah. And, you know, that kind of just reminds me too, that one of the questions I, I often get, because I do assess most of the patients that I see are five and under, even though we do assess all ages because we have other clinicians who do assessments as well. But my specialty, my passion are the very, very young ones. And so, you know, they're so young. And one of the the first questions I get is, well, where's my child going to be in five years, 10 years? What's adulthood going to look like? Where are they going to be next year? Are they going to be talking? And I don't have the answer to that. And I don't think anybody should have the answer to that. It's really just we have to meet where the child, we have to meet the child where they're at right now. And you can't provide that false hope and be like, yeah, everything's going to be fantastic in five years. And they're going to be completely verbal because we see that every child, they may, you may have a child who has the same scores on the ADOS at three years old, four years old, but they look completely different at six and seven, or one could be verbal or starting to talk. And then the other one could be still needing more additional services. Um, so there, you can't really say where the child's going to be and you can't provide that. That falls up. My biggest thing is just having the parent be the biggest advocate for the child and meeting the child where they're at and getting as many services that the child can qualify for and the services that the parent thinks is going to be best for the child too. Absolutely. I always think back to the day that Logan was evaluated and, you know, the doctor gave us the diagnosis of ASD and we had those same kind of questions of like, what, you know, what for him. And the answer she gave us was that, you know, she, she can't, she doesn't have a crystal ball. She can't see into the future, but she's like, you know, if, if we get him with good resources and kind of like you're saying, like for us to, you know, really advocate hard for him, she said, I have no doubt he's going to make a lot of great gains. And I just felt like that was a really good way to put it. Yes. Yeah. It it wasn't giving us like false hope of like, oh yeah, he's going to be talking. He's going to be doing all this stuff. He's going to be totally typical. But it was, it was enough to plant that seed of hope that especially at that point was diminishing, (laughs) you know, that was obviously a a difficult day. So I think back on that a lot, just the, like, he's going to make great gains and he's going to, you know, progress because I, I do unfortunately hear a lot of horror stories from people that kind of go the other way of doctors telling them, oh, they'll, they'll never talk. Okay. They'll never do this. They'll never do that. Nobody ever said anything like that to us. And I'm thankful because I would probably be in big trouble if they did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, nor should they, because nobody has the answer, but I like that where they say that they provide that hope because the hope is going to give you that courage and strength that you need for your child. A hundred percent. Said it like I think on the very first episode of Adventures in Autism that I think hope is like the strongest emotion that we as humans can hold on to. And if you have even just like a shred of it, you need to foster that and just nurture it because losing hope is a terrible feeling and just holding on to hope and seeing that hope grow is it, it really means everything. Um, and not just with autism, but just in general. Um, okay, so really interesting hearing about the, uh, these things that we're, we're talking about with like evaluations. Um, one of the things that you and I were talking about before that I think is really interesting is especially for the kiddos that, you know, maybe have 
need less support and have a lot of great skills and are like academically achieving a lot, it can be really challenging for parents like in the schools, even if they have that clinical diagnosis to kind of like reinforce sort of like what the the doctor is saying, because the school then has like a different set of circumstances. What have you seen as far as like with IEPs and whatnot? And do you have any advice for parents going forward that are fighting with the school when they're saying, okay, my child has a clinical diagnosis and the school is saying, no, your kid is fine. Yeah, I would have them have any type of IEP advocate, which would be really helpful having the person if their child had a clinical diagnosis, then that would mean they had other testing done outside from the school, having that team come together, so they can have a better understanding of, okay, maybe the child is performing one way in school, but how are they really performing in school? Because as we spoke before, that sometimes kids, they can be getting up in the classroom, um, you know, if they're having any type of sensory issues, or if they're shutting down when they're doing their work, you know, while that's not DSM diagnostic criteria for autism, those are secondary symptoms or traits because of the diagnosis. So they're, they might be struggling with the sensory overload in the classroom and everything too. So, you know, instead of punishing the child for it, because they're not being defined purposely, they're just really struggling because of all these other difficulties that they're having to make sure that they have some, some type of supports in place. Even if it's okay, the child's really busy, needs to get up and walk around. Let's have this child go pass out papers. Can that be part of it too? You know, when it's time to take a break or maybe after lunch, having them go and do some OT or have some fidgets or some, some downtime, things like that. There's so much that we can do. It really doesn't take a lot, you know, on, on the school's end. It can just be little things like that, like these little tiny breaks that can easily be put in so the child's not feeling necessarily even different, right? Like passing out papers in class. We know this child is a busy one. They want to get up and walk around. Okay, so we can say, okay, let's, let's, let's tell them that every day at 10 o'clock when we go and do math sheets, they, they can be the one to go and pass out all the math sheets. So they're getting that extra energy out too, and that movement, but having, making sure that they have an advocate and that they know that they are their child's biggest advocate and to not be shut down or discouraged if the school isn't going to provide certain services for them. That's a really good um, suggestion just with like passing out the papers, because like you were saying, like, you know, just because a child is like getting up and walking around, it's not because they're, they're being defiant. Like they might be really struggling with, you know, sitting still, even just something as, as simple as like having a different chair. I'm always like, yes. is when I go into Logan's classroom, because I mean, obviously he, this is an autism class, but they have like probably like 10 different kind of chairs in that class. They have like the rocking chair. They have like the bouncy ball chair. They have the cube chair. Like they just have all these different things. And, or even like one of those, um, what do they call those? Like the sit move kind of thing where it's like, it's, um, it just is like a little, like, almost like a little flat kind of balloon that they can sit on. It's got like some texture. So it's like, you can kind of like work it a little bit when you're sitting down. Um, just little things like that, that really yeah. provide that input and kind of give a little bit more support and would really help a child. And that's why, like I was saying, I've, I've talked to other parents that they've run into this issue and because their child is performing well academically, the school will take away the IEP. And even if your child is performing well academically and not having like major issues, I, I just think it's like such a shame for them to actually take away the whole IEP if they do have a clinical diagnosis, because what if one of these things comes up like, yeah, what if they're doing great this year? But what about next year? They're having this issue where they're getting up and walking around. Yes. Now the IEP is gone. What, what do you have like advice for parents in that kind of situation? I, sorry, I think that you're breaking up. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, I can hear you. Oh, okay. Sorry. Can you say that last part? I think it was cutting out. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I just said for, for parents that are, are struggling where like, if they're wanting to take away the IEP, do you have any advice for them? Yes. So if they still, if the child is also still having any type of private services too, that will also allow for that push that the school still needs to maintain that IEP. Or if the child, you know, the school usually, at least in Michigan, evaluates a child every two to three years. So it could be also like state differences too, but if they're getting their own private evaluations on an annual basis and they can still show and say, Hey, this child is still struggling in these areas, even though they excel in these areas, we still need to get the child some type of support or services. Some children are also twice exceptional. So they could have an ADHD or an autism diagnosis, um, but then also be significantly gifted as well. And so that's also going to add into more of an argument to say, hey, like, yes, even though they're excelling academically, they also may become more resistant to doing the work. Or like you said, like if something happens then with those transitions, because the thing with autism is that we know that transitions and sensory are some of like the two top symptoms, right? So if they're transitioning from, let's say, even fifth grade to sixth grade, that's a huge transition or sixth grade or sorry, eighth grade to ninth grade. And so to have those supports in place beforehand and some of those supports are also type of accommodations for the child, too, so that they're not relearning all these accommodations on top of this huge transitional period for them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like sometimes with a parent, it's like you hear, oh, your your child's doing so well. We want to take away the IEP. And that seems like oh my gosh, I'm so glad they're, they're, you know, progressing. We don't need the yeah. IEP anymore. But I mean, just knowing what, what I know and from people yeah. that I've spoken to, I would never get rid of the IEP, even if it's like bare bones and there's very yeah. little in it. It just, it does protect you and your child because like you said, there's, there's always going to be like something on the horizon and so many things that you just can't predict. Well, then we also have to ask ourselves too, uh, why is the child performing so well that they don't need the IEP? Is it because of the accommodations and right. services that they're receiving that's helping them to succeed so well? And that's another thing they need to consider. Yeah, that's so, so true. Um, one of the other things we were talking about before that I think is really interesting, and this kind of goes back a little bit to to diagnosing, Um you, because this is such like your area of expertise, I think you have a much more kind of like nuanced understanding of diagnosing. And like you said, you'll take things into consideration that are not necessarily like part of the ADOS, but you know, like, like how, how you were saying with like the differences with girls and boys for parents that are, when you're, when you're looking for a doctor to, to diagnose, or let's say like, like we were saying, parents really know their kids best and they're seeing these things that maybe are not like technically symptoms of autism, but are just sort of, you know, a red flag to the parent or something that they see as, as not so typical, but then they go to the doctor and, oh no, your child's totally fine. What, what advice do you have for that? Especially when there is kind of this more like old school view of autism and kind of like how you had said in the beginning, like we are, we're learning more about autism as time goes on, but we still have so much to learn. I think like, like we were saying, even with doctors, sometimes they just don't have that same understanding. What advice do you have for parents that are, you know, maybe they do have a, a kiddo, like I said, that needs less support and their, their child is doing well, but they, they have these, these quirks and things that are just raising a red flag to the parents. What do you, what do you have to say about that? Yeah. So sometimes, you know, when, when patients come in or the, you know, the parents were doing the intake that autism isn't even on their radar, but the child may have some difficulties or like those quirks that you said, and that's something that I even suggest during the evaluation. Like, hey, have you ever considered that maybe your child may be autistic? Or has anyone ever mentioned that? Or have you ever done a Google search on that? You know, and it may not even be on their radar. They just know that something 
might be different or their child is struggling in some area, whether it's socially or with transitions or sensory, they know they know something. It's like they see it. They know their own child. So they're doing, they're doing, you know, I think their due diligence by getting them evaluated. Now, pediatricians may not always go and refer out, but that doesn't mean that you cannot go and seek your own evaluation through a private mental health facility. Schools, you know, if you go and file for an IEP, they do their own evaluations. But if you go and have private testing done with a pediatric neuropsychologist, then you will have a better understanding of where your child's strengths and weaknesses are because evaluations are so thorough. You know, they're looking at the IQ, they're looking at executive functioning, academic, social functioning, and that will really help you better understand from a diagnostic approach of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I will say that, so we initially had Logan diagnosed, like I said, when he, he was right after he turned four with a, a developmental pediatrician, because that was just kind of all I knew at the time was to like get a referral for the developmental pediatrician. But then um, just a couple of years ago, we needed an updated diagnosis for our insurance, which that's a whole other topic, which is kind of silly that they wanted us to update the diagnosis when autism yeah. is, when go away. Back. Yeah. Um, but I did, um, I did see a, a neuropsych that time and I felt like it was not that we, like I said, we actually had a good experience with a developmental pediatrician, but again, I felt like it was kind of like an old school view oh, yeah. of things, especially looking back now. Whereas when we went and talked with the, the neuropsych, I just, I felt like there was a greater understanding of just like we were saying, kind of the, the nuances of autism, the things that are maybe not on paper necessarily the, the typical like symptoms of autism, but things that, you know, they, the, the, the neuropsych just understood or was able to kind of better explain to us. Um, and I mean, again, like you said, it really depends on like the, who, who you go see and obviously every doctor or clinician is different. Um, but I, we had a really good experience with that neuropsych. Yeah. I'm glad, you know, that, that at least you had a good experience with them too. And they were able to provide some type of insight for you too. Um, you know, I think it's also helpful too of parents. You know, there are screeners online, like our website. We have a, a screener for autism on our website, and I'm sure there's others online as well too. And that can also provide, I think, some something for parents that are not diagnostic. But then, if they're thinking, "Oh, my child has this and this," could it be maybe this or that? And if they go and do screeners or talk to other parents, make a list of their concerns and bring it to a psychologist, that will also be really helpful too, because it's all kind of laid out there. Like the more information that they provide to a clinician, I think the better that clinician can then understand the parent's concerns and the child's difficulties. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel like this was very enlightening. Um, I loved hearing all about your practice. Thank you you so much for coming on the show and just explaining all of this. Can you share where people can connect with you? I know like you were just saying, you've got the screen on your website, but you just on your social media also have a lot of great resources. Yeah, thank you. So I'm always posting a lot of different things on my social media page um, for parents, things on autism, ADHD. So my social media for Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and TikTok is Dr. Cat underscore PsyD. So that's D-R-K-A-T underscore and then P-S-Y-D. Um, and then also our website, brightpinepsychology.com, we have screeners on there for autism. If parents are concerned or have any um, questions about that, they can also contact me on there. Wonderful. Well, I will link all that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Cat. This was so great to chat with you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You take care. You too. Bye. Bye. 
Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Dr. Kat. Isn't she just awesome? I wish there was a million more Dr. Cats out there. We need more of her, more people that just are, you know, interested in this field and want to learn and are, you know, up to date on all the nuances of autism. It really is. It's never ceases to amaze me how people, even medical professionals, just don't seem to really get everything. And it just, even from this, this conversation with Dr. Kat, it was very apparent that she did. And I just think that the work she is doing is incredible. So thank you so much, Dr. Kat, for coming on the show. And like I had said in the beginning, if you're not following her, definitely do that. Yeah, she's just great. She shares tons of just little kind of tips and tricks and resources and all kinds of stuff on her social media. And then like she was saying on her website, she has some kind of more detailed resources and just lots of good stuff. So definitely check that out in the show notes. If you want to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook at Adventures in Autism Podcast, on Instagram at Adventures in Autism Pod, or you can email me at Adventures in Autism 2018 at yahoo.com. I always love hearing from you guys. Never hesitate to send me a message. I'm a little behind on my emails right now, so I apologize if I've not gotten back to you. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, I would love to have you. The best way to do that is with email. If you would just send me a little backstory, what you'd like to talk about if you were a guest, that's really helpful. And I promise I will get back to you as soon as I can. <laughs> um, and again, if you are enjoying the show and you have not yet left a rating review on Apple Podcasts, I would be so, so appreciative if you would take a moment to do that. It really does help other people to find the show. And I just always think if anyone's out there could benefit from listening to a show like this, I want them to find it as easy as they can. So I don't know how it all works, but the more ratings and reviews the show gets, the easier it is for them to find. <laughs> um, but that is all for now and lots of awesome episodes coming. I have some really great recordings in the vault and then some really good ones coming up that I'm excited about. So stay tuned for all that. And until next time, take care.